Welcome to the District Podcast Rural Report Edition, where we cover topics relevant to folks living outside of the big cities. I'm Teresa Mall, Assistant Editor at Spectator World. Today, we're talking about a new report that's found America's rural population is shrinking for the first time. We're joined today by someone who's an expert on rural America. Bill Kaufman is a celebrated writer, the author of several books, and of course, a Spectator World contributor, as well as the American Life columnist for the Spectator print magazine. Bill, you're joining us today from a small town in upstate New York. And before we dive into things, let's set the scene for our listeners. Can you describe what it's like where you live and what you love about it? Let's set the scene. First of all, this is, so this is the uh, this is the rural report of the. Is this like for uh, the farmlands of the District of Columbia or what? Uh, some... Well, the, yeah, the podcast the podcast is called the District, but there's a lot of really great people who live outside of the district and outside of cities in general, like you and me. So we want to get thank you, thank you. Yeah, yeah. I'm uh, I'm coming to you live from Genesee County, New York, which is one of uh, four counties in uh, New York State that has more cows than people. Um, curiously, the two most the two most notable uh, figures, probably 20th century figures that Genesee County produced. Uh, the novelist uh, John Gardner, most famous for the Sunlight Dialogues in October Light, and the uh, our longtime congressman Barbara Conable, who was uh, on multiple occasions voted most respected member of the House. Uh, I actually edited uh, his diaries uh, a year or so ago. They both grew up on uh, farms in which uh, their fathers used to recite uh, Shakespearean poetry uh, to the cows while milking. So I think we're distinguished also by the most literate cows in America. <laughs> I would say so. Yeah, and my 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 hometown is the uh, is the um, uh, geographic centerpiece centerpiece of uh, of Genesee County. It's called Batavia. It's population fifteen thousand. Uh, I'm actually coming to you from five miles north of Batavia in Elba, which I think is kind of an apt address for an exile. Uh, <laughs> live here with my, my my wife. Actually, my wife is uh, my wife is a native Los Angelina, so. Uh, there was a little bit of a culture shock involved, but she actually ended up being town supervisor for, uh, she served two terms. She could have served more, but she said two terms is enough for George Washington. So it's enough for me. Huh. And uh, yeah, we're, uh, as I said, we're population 15,000 or so in our, in, in, in Batavia. It was uh, about a thousand or two. <clears throat> we uh, suffer, I suppose, from some of the maladies that uh, you talked about in, in your uh, very fine piece. Uh, certainly the whole, uh, uh, Fentanyl and opioid uh, epidemic has not passed us by. In fact, it was it was a couple of years ago. Uh, this really hit home when um, uh, the span of oh, it's been about three or four months. Uh, we had the uh, sons or daughters of uh, three uh, good friends OD die from overdoses. Now, I think in the, my previous uh, several decades of life, I had known one person who died of an overdose of drugs. So, uh, you know, it's a uh, that's hit us hard, but uh, you know we're resilient, and there are, uh, as you know, Teresa. I know you're you're from a small town in Pennsylvania. Uh, maybe you can talk about that too. Um, I don't know. There are uh, the, the the pluses vastly outweigh the uh, the minuses, at least uh, from my uh, POV. I agree, certainly. Um, I think of big cities having more of the annoying things of life and a few of the charms that small towns have, but just the annoying things outweigh whatever benefits it may have. 
So you mentioned being an exile there in Elba. Is this a, a self-exile? I'm wondering. I know. <laughs> <laughs> no, what I are you exiled I, from? I wasn't like I wasn't like sent to Coventry for any uh, violation <laughs> of uh, of etiquette. No, I, I had uh, upon graduating uh, college, I I lived in D.C. for several years. I was a legislative assistant to Senator Pat Moynihan, one of the uh, the only interesting uh, political figures of our time, I think. Um, uh, but that was sort of, sort of anarchist-making experience, really. <laughs> I, uh, and uh, I, uh, I also uh, worked as a, a magazine editor in uh, Southern California for uh, Reason Magazine, which is a libertarianish magazine, still extant. Um, and then in the late '80s, uh, uh, I, my wife and I were living in, in D.C. at the time, and uh, I'd always been—I'd uh, always suffered homesickness, you know, no matter where I was. Um, but I just. Uh, I just assumed that, of course, I couldn't go home. I mean, that's that 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 that's that's one of what's one of the problems. You know, these things are these assumptions are even embedded in our language. You know, if we uh, we say of a promising youngster, uh, you know, hey, she, uh, she's going far, she'll go far. The um, the implicit assumption being that success can be measured in the distance one has traveled from home. On the other hand, if we say of a boy, uh, you know, he's not going anywhere, we're not praising him for his steadfast loyalty to a place, but rather damning him as an ambitionless sluggard. And yet, of course, the mobile, the hypermobile rule, the entire ruling class is hypermobile. Um, anyway, I, uh, I convinced uh, Lucine, my lovely wife, I said, hey, why don't, we, uh, why don't we move back to my hometown for like a one-year experiment? And uh, that one year has been, uh, should be measured in like Old Testament terms, like Methuselah, you know, <laughs> or probably, uh, so it's been like over 30 years, but I, you know, I think we're, I, th- I figure we're still like in March or April, maybe. Time does not fly whenever you're in the country, or or does it? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the the winter can drag. You know, it's not. You know, that, and that's the thing. Lord Acton said, "Exile is the nursery of nationalism." I think a lot of times when you're not when you're not living in your home place, uh, you kind of romanticize it. You know, but when you're actually when you're actually there, when you're actually home, uh, you know, you realize that it, it contains pretty much the same quota of uh, great people and knuckleheads as anywhere else. But there's a uh, one of the things I like about it is the um, uh, people you get to know people multidimensionally in a way in a small place. And this doesn't have to be a small town. It can be it can be a, a neighborhood, a city, a city block. It can be a, a suburban neighborhood, too. But you get to know people multidimensionally in a way that I think is is increasingly rare today. And I think that's one of the things that's completely poisoned political discourse at the Nash at the national level, which is just. <laughs> which is just so grotesque and awful. You know, I think of, uh, I, I, I've thought, I've mentioned before, I've, I've thought of uh, this one organization that was part of, a, a local group, a community group, and, uh, you know, you look across the table, and we're working side by side there. There's a, there's someone who's a uh, uh, an evangelical Christian, uh, probably very conservative politically, and a very out uh, gay person. Now, if they were... They, first of all, they wouldn't really get together in a big city, uh, probably. Uh, they would exist only as these, the unidimensional, defined only by by those facts. And so if they came together at all, it would be like over the Internet, you know. And like one would be calling the other, you know, right-wing Christian nut. The other one would be saying, you know, you're debauched to homo or whatever. I mean, just, just awful, awful discourse. Um, but beca- but that's because they don't know each other. They only know each other unidimensionally. You know each other multidimensionally. Um, you know, you see this person around, you, you work together in the, like the joyful labor, the joyful or necessary l- labor of neighbors, 
And those other things don't matter so much. Um, and I think that can, I think that can only exist, only exist in small, in, in small communities, um, which is why I'm, you know, I mean, politically, culturally, socially, whatever I'm, uh, I'm an extreme decentralist localist. Um, because I just don't think, I think, I think at the mass scale, it just doesn't work. People become, people become abstractions, you know, and what do you, you know, what, what, you know, so you end up, shoving them in housing projects or shipping them off to fight and die in senseless wars, um, which is basically what we do. <laughs> I totally agree with that. That's something that I, I talk a lot about with my friends and people in the small town that we, we kind of feel like we're, we're in a little snow globe or something. It's like being in a, in a family where you're all stuck at home at Christmas time or something, and you have to figure out a way to, to get along because you're all in a small town. And even the eccentrics, you know, even the weird people you see around, you still have to get along because you, you see each other at the grocery store, you see each other at the city council meeting, you have to look beyond your differences and find a way you don't have a choice to ostracize people whenever, whenever you're constantly, you, you can't get away from them. So it's kind of, you know, it can be, be annoying, but it's also part of part of working together. You're you're forced to do that whenever there's only so many people to do these jobs. Absolutely, I mean, small in small places you don't fall through the cracks. I mean, one one of the things that uh, always saddens me about going to the cities. And look, I've you know I've you know traveled a lot in my life. I've, I've, I've there are a lot of cities I like. I'm not casting aspersions on them, but uh, you see homeless people who these people who just have no, no social support system. All they would have, all I, you know, the government I know tries to do something for them, but again, it's, 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 it's impersonal in a, in a small place. Um, it's much harder to fall through the cracks and it's not that it's not that you're not going to be uh, judged for, <laughs> you know, for your vices or whatever, but, but you're not a, you're not a number, you know, <laughs> that actually reminds me. I, should, I can't tell this story. <laughs> Let's go on. <laughs> well, you'll have to tell me off the air. I'm we'll so tell you, I'll, now. I'll, I'll tell you off the air. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, that's something I've written about as well is how even in big cities, which, you know, they have a lot of advantages, well, a few advantages, <laughs> you know, you think of museums and really nice restaurants, things like that. But I find that people who enjoy living in cities, what they like about it is establishing something that mimics a small town experience where they have their neighborhood pub. They have their guy at the post office who knows them by name and always checks their box or them, things like that. So even within a big city, you can have that kind of small town experience. And um, with the, the hypermobility or being, I feel like more so than, you know, high population urban areas, the real kind of um, threat to our society is those uh, kind of nameless, faceless suburbs, where, as you mentioned, people are just shoved in these uh, these housing developments where everything looks the same. You don't even interact with your neighbors. You, you leave work at nine in the morning, you come home nine at night, and you just, you don't have any connectivity, and you can come and go and have a different neighbor every month, and nobody really notices or cares, so you just become really anonymous. Right, right. Climbing, climbing the corporate ladder, so you move to a, uh, you know, you move to a somewhat more affluent suburb when you get a promotion, and or you can move down. I mean, the, the, the one, the one small town experience that uh, that does feature a lot of transients is our college towns, which are an interesting, uh, you know, they're an interesting case because you have, you know, the the kids are there, and uh, you know they're gonna, you know, they're gonna be gone there for four years. Uh, let's say stick with it, and then they're gone, so they don't really have any kind of investment in the place. And a lot of times the faculty, uh, you know, 
a certain percentage of them look down on uh, the townies, as the uh, uh, invidious uh, uh, phrase goes. And so I think sometimes you'll find you'll find that it's you'll find that in college towns they reach for coercion quicker than they do in non-college towns. I mean, you look at things like the things like uh, smoking bans. I mean, like, I, I don't smoke. I don't really like you know smoking. You know, inhaling smoke in a restaurant, but. Uh, the smoking bans came in first in in college towns where a lot of people don't know each other. You know, actually, you live you live somewhat close to State College, right? I do. Yes, I'm about 25 minutes away, and I always say that I would never want to live there. Going to State College, it's like 60,000 people now, and it's growing, booming. It's crazy. It's a retirement town, and then actually, a lot of college kids. I I read a report that now that remote work is becoming more acceptable and more common, especially since COVID, a lot of young people are staying in the college towns that you know they they go to college and they get a job they can work remotely, and then their friends are still there, or they have good memories of going to the local bar. They have their community there, and they're not leaving. So we might see a rise in in young people actually staying in college towns rather than just having you know families with of professors and things. Wait, tell, uh, me, tell me, tell me about your tell me about your town. Sounds interesting. Yeah, I love my town. I have deep roots here. My family's been here since around the Civil War, and. Um, yeah, I actually grew up in the house that Hardman Phillips of Phillipsburg built. Um, it sounds charming, but it's a 200-year-old kind of more of a barn that we have to take care of. It has servants' quarters, but we don't have servants anymore, so we're the servants. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's just I, I like you. I lived in D.C. I went to college in Texas, lived in Dallas, uh, decided I wasn't a city person, lived a couple different places, and then I got homesick too. And, you know, I – Something I wanted to touch on with you was you talk a lot about uh, small schools, and I know you've written about the importance of bringing back, you know, the tiny high school. And I was blessed to have this experience. Um, I went to small Catholic schools nearby. Um, I graduated with 77 other kids in high school, and that seemed like plenty <laughs> at the time. And these consolidations that happen for school districts to get more money, I I wonder if it's sort of a chicken or the egg experience. You and I both were were able to grow up in a small town and we even if we didn't know it at the time, we learned the value of living in a community and um, feeling that kind of comfortable familiarity that comes with being in a small town. And for people who don't have that, and a lot of that came from going to a school where your classmates were more or less your siblings and all the parents knew each other and everything. But if you don't have that from, from early on and you're being bussed around and constantly around strangers and, uh, is is that something that you feel the the generation now has never experienced? So why would they move to a small town or why would they move back home whenever they didn't have, you know, the they weren't in love with their small town to begin with. So <laughs> they moved to a city and they don't miss anything. Yeah. Well, I'd answer in two parts. First, first, yeah, school consolidation, which is one of my hobby horses in which uh, there were two waves of it, really. The first one was the early uh, early 20th century when progressive educators were kind of in the saddle and the idea was that, look, these kids are learning in these little uh, one room shacks and they're learning that, you know, the, uh, uh, the earth or the sun revolves around the earth or whatever, which of course completely untrue. But uh, so you had a massive wipeout of small schools. In. But then in our time, the really uh, disastrous thing was uh, uh, in the fifties, uh, uh, the wave of, of uh, consolidation. And it was pretty much a direct result of the cold war. Um, 
you know, which uh, I mean, the domestic consequences of, of the Cold War were, I think, catastrophic in this country. And this is one of the things like Sputnik, Sputnik goes up. And so it's like, oh, you know, uh, you know, little, little Ivan Sputnik in Russia over there, he's, he's drilled in these great uh, collectivist schools, you know, and our kids are going to this in this comparatively anarchic system. And so tens of thousands of small districts were wiped out. Uh, James Bryant Conant, who was the president of Harvard, who was uh, he issued a series of uh, reports, uh, very influential reports in which he had, uh, advocated the extermination of all uh, uh, high schools with fewer than 400 students. I mean, it's just the 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 evil the, the evil and the evil that man did. I mean, and the funny thing is, he had, he had been involved. I think in the Manhattan Project in the Second World War. He'd been involved in some sort of chemical warfare thing in the First World War. So, you know, after spending his life um, working toward the the uh, you know basically the gruesome deaths of people he never met, he decided to turn his attentions to American school children. And uh, you know, these schools these schools were disappeared and. You know, in a lot of small places. Now, for first, of, first of all, later studies show that uh, you know, kids. Uh, you know, the educational output of these large schools was not superior to small schools, and you also lose so much socially. And even even if you're not in the school, I mean, uh, small communities often there's kind of like their heart is kind of like tri valve, and it uh, there's the school, there's the churches, there's the volunteer fire departments, and you rip one of those things out, uh, and it's tough to survive. I mean. Uh, towns grew, drove a, grew, uh, uh, drew a lot of their identity from uh, from the school identity and pride, and that also comes in uh, through local sports teams, which are oft disparaged or mocked. But I, I I think you know they bring communities together in a great way. So yeah, I'm totally. Uh, I, I think consolidation was disastrous. We're seeing a little bit a little bit less of it today, but it's always this devil's bargain where the state, uh, you know, the state uh, holds out a. Uh, a carrot and you reach it and you find that the, the carrot is, uh, is poison. Um, but on, and on the subject of moving back, I want, I, uh, first of all, I, I, I have this very strong aversion to ever telling anyone what to do with his or her life. But, uh, uh, I, I never want to make it sound like I'm saying, Hey, you have to move back to your hometown because a lot of people don't have hometowns. They grew up uh, somewhat mobile or maybe their hometown has changed and, you know, in, in ways that make living there now very difficult. But the important thing, Booker, the great American Booker T. Washington um, once gave one of the great pieces of advice, which was cast down your bucket where you are. Or as Wendell Berry, the wisest man of our time, says, you know, become native to your place. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be your hometown. It doesn't have to be a little town. But don't let the place you live just be, you know, where you hang your head and, and eat, uh, you know, take out dinners. Um, I mean, Become involved in some way. Become part of the. Become part of the, the the community. I mean, it just makes it just makes life richer, I think. Um, and it sort of waters uh, and, and fertilizes uh, the roots. I mean, I uh, you know I think that uh, you know the American renewal. If we're gonna if we're gonna have one, it's gonna have to. It has to start locally. It doesn't have to start only in small towns, but just but locally with people caring about about where they live and, and keeping their, keeping their focus nigh unto, you know, <laughs> keeping your focus nigh. I mean, if you want to change the world, I think it has to be within, within your own ambit, you know, within your own circle of love, a- anything else. And you're ceding power to people you don't know who don't have your best interests or the best interests of your place at heart. So, yeah, you know, just cast out, cast down your bucket and, uh, uh, make, make a place for yourself. Um, and I think, uh, 
I, I, I think you'll be surprised and gratified by how, uh, how satisfying that is and that you can make a difference on the small scale, which the human scale, which is the only scale that can really measure a person's worth. I totally agree. And I, I think that probably a lot of the reason we have such high rates of depression these days is that people, not, they're not caring about their little community or where they are because they're not really incentivized to because they live in these these soulless places, but they they don't feel cared about or that they're making a difference in what they do. You know, if you sit in a cubicle all day and just click on spreadsheets and then you go home and eat your homogenous takeout food, you're not you don't you don't see a difference and you don't you're not touching lives and the lives aren't touching you. But as, as you said, if you drop down your bucket and you get involved and you make a difference locally, it's, it goes both ways. And I think it, it leads to a happier life and a happier society and a happier world. Yeah. And then, and of course, obviously COVID the last two years have contributed to that. I mean, and, and who, uh, and who, pro- who profited Amazon, Netflix, Google, the big change, target, Walmart, whatever. And the places that are, are shut down, the coffee shops, the bars, the churches—you know, high school basketball, whatever. I mean, the places and things that gives our give our lives depth and texture and meaning. These are the places that the authorities <laughs> shut down. You know, I mean, it—you uh, know—it's not that they're intentionally trying to destroy the things that that matter, but uh, you know, that's that's the that's the effect. I don't know. I don't know about you, but I, I think you know. I think, man, these kids. Four, five, six-year-olds—they've gone two years without seeing smiles, without getting facial cues. This is going to be the most screwed-up generation in the history of the world. I agree. Yeah, especially at that age, and that's going to—two or three years is is a lot of years. Whenever you're only six, so yeah. <laughs> and, it, it, and it's interesting. The one place that's still holding on to a mask magnet, mask mask mandates, other than obviously medical facilities, are uh, universities. You know. I was at my alma mater the other day. I used their very good library and, uh, you know, it's the one place, you know, put a mask on it, you know, it's like no one else in the library. So I engaged in the usual civil disobedience. One final question. We are short on time, Bill, but do you have hope that this dip in in rural population, this shrinkage that we've seen, it was minor, but as we noted, it is the first time that we've actually seen uh the population shrink in rural areas since they've been keeping track of these things. I've noticed a trend and it's kind of among hipsters uh, for handcrafted items, things that are locally mm-hmm. sourced, things that are small batch, kind of a return to that localism. I, I met the crafter who made this wooden spoon, things like that. Do you think that's merely a, a trendy thing to make people feel virtuous or do you think there's an actual return to uh, especially after COVID, they a lot of people have been working remotely. There wasn't the huge influx of, you know, Manhattanites going to rural Iowa right. and you know setting up shop anything like that. But right. people, right. isn't that what they call them? Right. <laughs> yeah. Do you think? Uh, do you think that people are are figuring out? And the, the big thing is that there are no jobs in small towns. Or, but um, as people get more creative and innovative and technology continues to to advance that rural towns will see a resurgence and and we're not quite doomed after all yeah you know it's uh, i mean i'm i'm a congenital optimist so uh i'm uh, wendell berry uh has said that there there's this redemptive moment going on and has been for the last several years as, as you may i mean you know you can see it in community support agriculture you can see it in 
you know, as much as we might make fun of like hipster craft brewing, that kind of stuff, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's terrific, you know, um, and, and, you, and you see it in the revival of, of handcrafts, you see it in, you know, it, historic preservation, you see it in alternatives to education. Absolutely. I mean, people, people say, you know, it, people sense there's some, something's gone terribly wrong um, and they want meaning in their lives. And, you know, with the decline, unfortunately, of uh, Christianity is a, a strong force in uh, a lot of people's lives. Um, yeah, I think I, I, I think that uh, I, I think there are a lot of good signs on the horizon. The, the interesting thing is that these these really hopeful developments of the grassroots are totally unreflected at uh, polit- in, in our politics at elite levels. I mean, obviously, the, the, the two parties, the Republicans and Democrats, are just as beholden to Wall Street and the military industrial complex uh, as ever. And uh, uh, and I don't see how that I don't see how that's going to change. But I've never thought that, you know, and it, it, renewal is not going to come politically anyway or through any kind of programs, 10 point programs, that kind of thing. You know, it's going to be individual revolutions of the, the heart and the soul. And I, I think I think we're seeing that. I think there's a lot of really interesting things happening at the grassroots, even in my, you know, in my town. I just see kind of a, a critical mass of people developing. Um, and a lot of them are not natives. You know, a lot of them are people who came in from outside and who can who can see, hey, there's there, there's something here that maybe people who grew up here don't uh, don't always recognize. So, yeah, I'm uh, I'm hopeful. If you enjoyed this podcast, please check out more at spectatorworld.com. And if you'd like to listen to us, please check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever podcasts are available.